electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Friday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Ford with Dietrich and Carl Quintanilla. Today, where are we in the repricing of tech? Consumer sentiment data today beat expectations, calming some fears of a recession, but today's gains not yet enough to save the NASDAQ from another week in the red, but it's still early. Meanwhile, analysts have seen enough cutting price targets across the board, and today we'll take a look at some important calls on Microsoft, Apple, and Netflix, which reports Tuesday. And the private markets continuing to feel the same heat. More on Stripe's $20 billion valuation cut this hour and what that says about investor expectations. Carl? Guys, we're going to kick off today's feed with a look at the consumer on this week full of data points. Despite some hot inflation and higher producer prices, uh, the metrics earlier in the week, July retail sales did beat estimates as well as consumer sentiment, although sentiment does remain near all-time lows. Probably most important, D, this morning is a look at the inflation expectations uh, on five-year in UMICH, uh, 2.8, which uh, the estimate was for three, the prior was 3.1, the peak was 3.3. So directionally, consumers are beginning to get the sense that maybe prices don't spiral out of control and that has big implications for the Fed. Yeah, so key what the consumer is thinking here. I go back to what Jamie Dimon said yesterday. He said a lot of different things, kind of threw the kitchen sink into his comments. But on the consumer, he said um, they're entering this recession with less leverage. So they're in pretty good shape, especially relative to other downturns. So maybe that hope that it's not going to be as harsh as previous recessions, that the Fed may be able be able to pull off that soft landing, John. There's also those prime numbers that were better than expected. So it feels like consumers can either kind of prop up this market as we're seeing today, indices are all up, or it could be another leg down depending on future data points because these, of course, are backward looking. See, I'm still skeptical, right? We, we got the hot inflation read this week. We see the ba- uh, banks building up reserves for bad loans. Uh, and yes, the consumer is still spending, but they're spending down their savings and they seem to be getting nervous about loading up credit cards. Last Friday, we got uh, that data that showed that U.S. consumer credit growth was slowing considerably in May. So I'm still curious what the next data points show us. I I don't know. (laughs) Well, that's why we watch them so closely. Uh, Meanwhile, guys, we have seen what's happened to some of the stocks that are down 70, 80, 90 percent off of their highs. We talk about them all the time. There's some deals now, some M&A some of them are cutting staff. Pinterest, one such name, 80% off of its high for the year. Shares are jumping this morning, though, on a journal report that activist investor Elliott Management has taken a 9% stake in the company. While those talks are underway, there's already been a leadership change. Of course, CEO Ben Silberman stepping down from that role, becoming executive chair. Bill Reddy from Google is going to take on this role. Guys, it's not just leadership at the very top. Um, head of global business operations, investor relations chief has also departed Pinterest. There's a new team coming in under Bill Reddy, who is seen um, as he's very highly regarded here in the Bay Area. It's not just Google. 
He's a fintech guy, not necessarily a social media guy. So that's going to be the challenge, Carl, for him. And you got to wonder what Elliott wants here. Are they going to sit back and see what he does? Or are they looking for a sale already with the stock down some 80 percent? Yeah, we've been around the block on that front, uh, remember, last summer. But the journal article, uh, John, does point out the weakness in MAUs back in Q1. Apple privacy obviously hasn't helped matters. Although, again, going back to retail sales, e-commerce did see a bump. And I imagine later in the hour we're going to talk about the analyst reaction to Prime Day and the likelihood that maybe their Q3 guide is not as bad as some fear. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when activists get into a stock, you get the feeling, okay, well, they want to change up management. They want to uh, see crisper ex- execution. They want them spending less on side projects or whatever. This one's got me confused because the whole social media yeah. space and the whole advertising ecosystem seems to be going through this reality check, this reset around, uh, does this really work? Do, are, are we going to see continued user growth? Can we prove attribution uh, for purchases? All of those things. And, and Pinterest has some fundamental technology things to grow, uh, to fix perhaps, but, but really to invent. And I wonder how much activists, D, are going to help them do that. Yeah, what can they do that Bill Reddy isn't going to coming into it with this payments and fintech experience? They're doing a big pivot with him already. Well, for more on expectations for tech, let's bring in CNBC contributor Delano Sapporo of New Street Advisors. Delano, it's great to have you with us. Happy Friday. Key, of course, going into this earnings season. It's all about the expectations, the guidance. We have seen a bunch of cuts, whether that be price targets, guidance estimates, um, over the last week or so, are they, has it been enough? What do you think, what are you expecting for this earnings season? Thanks for having me, uh, guys. Um, you know, you're right. I think we have seen some cuts, but I think we're, estimates are still high. So for, so for Q2, you're still looking at estimated earning growth on the S&P 500, about 4.3%. And if we actually hit that growth uh, rate for this quarter, it, it would be, you know, obviously a lower that we've seen um, since Q4 of 2020, which was at 4%. So I still think we're a little bit high. You guys are just discussing, you know, how the consumer is doing, uh, which I think we're teetering, right? Like there are places where we're seeing the consumer, you know, spending on their savings. You're seeing the banks set aside money for for bad uh, for provisions for a bad credit and that's that's a real thing here as we look to you know what tech companies are doing if you actually look at how the tech companies are actually cutting jobs and maybe freezing or laying off there's giving signs that you know things are slowing down i think that has to be taken into consideration yeah and delano it's been kind of interesting the way that wall street analysts have been cutting it's been sort of top down in batches a whole bunch of names thrown in Um, instead of on an individual stock basis. So do you think that that could lead to some good bargain picking opportunities in the weeks ahead? Yes, D. I always look at, you know, bargain picking opportunities. And that's, you know, something that all investors should be assessing. I think that's a thing that we have to be patient here. Because, you know, we've talked about what the Fed's going to do. We have that meeting coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, with the inflation numbers that just came out, it, it seems like the Fed is going to still be aggressively raising rates, at least in the near term, right? And the market's pricing, whether it's going to be 75 basis points or 100, um, 100 bips, and that's going to be seen uh, in a couple of weeks. But, you know, for growth, that doesn't bode well for growth in the near term. And so investors that are looking for these bargain opportunities have to understand that we're still going to be in volatile times for growth, uh, for tech, uh, for that landscape overall. But I think if you look further out, um, there's going to be opportunities where these companies will reprice later on. Dono, what do you make of Pinterest and particularly Elliott getting in? I mean, is this just a swift kick in the pants 
uh, where you're going to expect management to perhaps be more on their toes now, to be more communicative, maybe crisper in their execution. And so that um, might get an investor more interested in being in it as opposed to a company where, hey, maybe it's controlled. Uh, maybe the CEO feels like he can take a long view and, and take his time figuring out the business model. Or, or, or does it not shift your view on Pinterest versus its cohort in social media and advertising at all? Jam. Yes, I think it does. It is a swift kick in the pants. Whenever you're seeing the companies bring out, you know, kind of outside consultation, obviously this is an investment situation. If you look at Peloton, there was outside consultation to restructure their business and their cost efficiency. That is a swift kick in the pants. I think investors are sharing the fact that their management has, you know, been struggling. Obviously the macro environment overall, but management in general has been struggling in, in an environment with Pinterest. So bringing in an investor, uh, activist investor that can kind of look at it from a fresh perspective, that could be good. I think the business model is still strong. I've you know held positions in Pinterest, um, and I think there's still opportunity for it, but this macro environment bodes well where you have to see a, a fresh perspective, especially if management's struggling in a certain situation, John. Hey, Delano, you know, um, we're watching the markets here. Dow's up 620. Uh, the NASDAQ 100, after underperforming for so much of the year, is actually, you know, uh, quarter to date is, is double the S&P. And I wonder if you think there is a flow of money getting out of commodities, getting out of energy and taking a flyer on growth and tech. And if so, how long that can last? There, 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 there could be. And Carl, you were, you know, pointed on your Twitter what's going on with commodity prices, um, you know, recently. And I, I think, you know, some investors are starting to look at the different, uh, have been looking at the valuations, have been looking at the reprice, have been looking at the trading multiples for some of this growth in tech, um, and taking opportunities to take either longer positions in them. I think there have to be longer positions because if you look at what's happening and we're still in the rate hike environment, uh, it's going to be volatile for growth in tech uh, for a while. But these stocks in, in these areas have been beaten down. Um, investors are definitely assessing, we've been assessing, you know, opportunities, especially in mega cap tech, and, you know, that look strong. If you look at how Apple's traded over the last couple of days and five days, it's, it's been kind of a repricing for them. But, you know, it's generally going to be a longer term position because in the near term, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be volatile. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to those mega caps later on in the show. Delano, always great to get your insights. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. That volatility Delano was just talking about and macro concerns that are hitting the public market also reflected in tech's private valuations. The Journal reporting the payments company Stripe, uh, the most valuable startup in the U.S. once, perhaps still, has cut the internal value of shares by 28%, taking that valuation down to $74 billion. That's more than $20 billion short of the $95 billion where they were last valued during a funding round last year. The news comes on top of a slew of other haircuts across the industry with buy now, pay later company Klarna seeing its valuation cut earlier this month to $6.5, $6.7 billion from almost uh, $46 billion back in 2021. Instacart cutting its valuation 38% or $15 billion back in March. D, the difference, it seems to me, is whether these companies need to raise money Because when they do, in a sense, it's almost like a public market type valuation cut where they're uh, taking a cut similar to what publicly traded stocks are, which is more than 50 percent. Or if they're just kind of internally repricing, which could be good for recruiting, for retention, if they're, uh, you know, sort of pricing the the latest options and equity that they're giving employees, in which case, you know, it's a 28 percent. That's not much in today's market. 
compared to some of the other haircuts we're seeing? It's a great question, John. It's that 409A. That's the internal valuation that they use. Um, I got to talk to a few VCs and ask them how that compares, because that's a really good question. If you're raising money, do you get cut even more? In the case of Stripe, Carl, <laughs> I can't help but wonder if this company missed its chance to IPO. This is the darling of all Silicon Valley darlings. It has raised so much money over the years. Um, what have they been waiting for? We know so little about the company, even though it is now more than 10 years old, which is a dinosaur in the startup world. It's remarkable uh, to think about that. They have been around for an awfully long time. It's the perfect place, actually, to start with our next guest, the so-called Dean of Valuation, NYU Stern School of Business, Professor Aswath Demoter. And, uh, Professor, it's great to have you back. I want to ask you about risk capital and valuations, but through the lens of inflation, because I think it's your view that uh, until inflation shows true signs of moderating, uh, then you, you will be waiting for markets to turn. It's, it's not just that inflation is high, it's that inflation keeps coming in ahead of ex expectations. It's happened all year that's causing markets to be roared. I mean, th there has to be a point where expectations have to catch up with what's actually happening on the ground. And until that happens, I think you're going to see risk capital stay on the sidelines. So I think uh, right now, I think you're starting to see convergence. Uh, the Michigan Consumer Survey right now is at 6.8%. The actual inflation is at 9%. Who knows, within the next couple of months, expectations might be running ahead of the actual number. And that, I think, will be the turning point for the market. Interesting. So if, if we are in that pivot, or if we were beginning mm -hmm. that pivot, where do you go? Uh, you, like, you like safety, but I think you like safety mm -hmm. in an area of tech, yes? And I think the reason for that is the, in a risk capital is withdrawn from the market, as you saw with the down rounds at private companies, and you see how much more risky tech has been affected than the safer parts of the market. I don't think risk capital is coming back the way it was before this happened. I think we've had a decade of excessive risk capital. It's been too easy for young companies to raise money. I know that sounds callous, but I think we're due for a correction where you need some type of balance between safety capital and risk capital, and we lost that balance over a decade. And we're going to find a new balance, and that new balance might mean that companies like Stripe might never see the pricing that they saw during the peak of the risk capital. Um, in a way, I guess that might be good, though, because uh, if they had gone public at the time when a firm went public, then they'd probably be suffering the same slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in the public markets now. But I wonder how much harder is it for you to uh, value stocks now when inflation's hard to estimate and it's sort of hard to know how Fed policy is going to impact growth, certainly in the broader economy, but for individual companies. So that sort of price to revenue, price to earnings to growth uh, number, it's, the possibilities are so wide. Now, normally, when you invest, you invest in your story for a company, and you try to tell a good story, and you try to say, do I believe that story? Right now, you've got a macro player in this game that's completely out of your control, which is inflation. So you could tell the very best story for a company, but if inflation behaves in ways you didn't anticipate, it can wipe out your story. So what that effectively means is stock picking becomes much more dicey, much more difficult, because you got this unknown hanging over every story you tell about a company. Oswath, let's uh, talk about the NVIDIA story, because I feel like you're pretty conservative with your view of valuations. But this is a stock that, yes, it's come down a lot this year, but still relatively expensive compared to the broader chip space. 
other players. Is it possible, I know you've taken a bruising, you say you're staying in it, but is it possible that not all of the bad news is baked in? Forward P multiple still 29 times earnings. Um, got crypto headwinds, waning gaming headwinds, the whole chip space. What's your reasoning here? You know, I think NVIDIA has always traded at a premium because its margins are so much higher than the rest of the chip sector. The big challenge with NVIDIA, if you're an investor, is can they keep those margins higher than the average? I think they can, and I think at today's prices, I'd still buy. But I think that is, in fact, the biggest risk here is that somehow you get margins level off and NVIDIA comes back to the pack, then you're going to see even more of a correction. Now, I feel comfortable enough to hold it, but that doesn't mean that I don't see the risks involved in the company. Uh, on advertising and social media, you, you have Meta, I believe, but mm. you see a gap between Meta and Snap, and I'm wondering what the difference is. You know, I think it goes back to the risk capital story. When risk capital dries up, in a strange way, it makes the biggest and the most powerful players in any space even bigger and even more powerful. Because capital dries up to the companies that need to compete. So if you thought that the Fangam stocks dominated in the last decade, if risk capital dries up, they get even more dominant because the young startups that try to eat away at their market share are not going to have the capital to do it. So that would be my rationale for sticking with the bigger and more powerful players in these games now rather than the small upstarts. Aswath, uh, a few years ago, you wrote about the effect of stock-based compensation and how that can kind of dilute earnings. Um, feels more relevant than ever right now, especially as investors are looking for more profitability. But that can sometimes be hard to see. What do they need to look for to separate sort of real earnings, would we call them, versus those that could be diluted by that SBC? In a strange way, there's one of those few places where accountants did the right thing when they started to treat option expenses as expenses and reduced earnings. Unfortunately, analysts seem to reverse that good action by adding back stock-based compensation, an insane act in my view, because this is the only way these companies can compensate their employees. And if you're not counting compensation as expenses, what would you count as expenses? So I think in a sense, investors need to avoid what analysts are doing in terms of adding back stock-based compensation and actually use the stated earnings when they look at these companies and also consider the deadweight cost of having existing options hanging over the head of these companies. So I think we need to face reality as investors that these are not some passing phase. This is the way these companies compensate their employees, sometimes as suppliers and sometimes as consultants. Uh, indeed. And we'll see what, how that mix uh, changes their ability to hire and recruit. Uh, we, we chopped a lot of good wood there just now, uh, Professor. Appreciate it very much. Aswal Demoterin. Thank you. Morgan Stanley cutting software estimates across the board as they see signs of a slowdown. We're going to discuss with the analysts behind that call next. Stay with us. Tech Check is just getting started. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. 
Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amic slash you know. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Check out shares of Yelp. Goldman resuming coverage of the name at neutral, calling the company an open debate. They see a more balanced risk reward at at current prices, but they predict revenue reverting to pre-pandemic levels, bracing for headwinds, advertising competition, user growth risk. That stock up about 1% this morning, though, as you can see, down heavily on the year. Carl, you could even call that, and on the other hand, Alaforte. (laughs) <laughs> Meanwhile, Dow's up 650 here, uh, S&P 3860. Checking in on big tech, Google headed higher again uh, for the uh, head of the company's 20-for-1 split after the close tonight. Plus, KeyBank's cutting estimates on another mega-cap named Apple, and we'll find out why after the break. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amic slash you know. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. One of the big themes this week, tech reacting to macro concerns, including consumer weakness, analysts racing to cut estimates. Morgan Stanley, one of the names, bringing down some price targets, warning of a software slowdown, cutting estimates from Microsoft and others. Keith Weiss, the analyst behind that call, joins us now. But in context, I mean, you're cutting Microsoft to about 100 bucks above where it is right now. So it's not like uh, this, this is... Um, you're waving a, a, a white flag on the stock. In, in fact, your bear case scenario has Microsoft about where it is right now. So let's start with the bear case to understand it. How do you expect even a relatively strong cloud player to perhaps be negatively impacted in a recession? 
Well, thank you for having us. So I think it really comes down to understanding uh, the components of what's going to make up Microsoft's earnings. We feel very confident on the commercial businesses within Microsoft. Uh, we recently published a CIO survey where Microsoft screened very well. Uh, over 70% of CIOs we talk to expect to expand their spending with Microsoft um, uh, in, in the year ahead. So really good indications on the commercial side of the business. We have about 30% of revenues that are related to more consumer-oriented uh, parts of the equation. That's where we see a, a bigger risk profile for, for Microsoft, stuff like um, PCs. Uh, consumer PCs are definitely weakening. Advertising businesses tend to be um, more prone to macro slowdowns. That's where we're trying to impute a little bit more caution into our, our forward estimates. But even with that imputed caution, even with those uh, slightly lower estimates, we still think Microsoft represents a very good value here, trading at about 22 times our revised estimates on calendar 23 gap earnings. Microsoft is such a good one to talk about because the pieces of its business include um, parts that represent so many other businesses. If you talk about LinkedIn, for example, uh, I imagine if the labor mar slack market slackens and, and companies aren't looking for employees as desperately, that revenue could come down from that side as well as from the marketing side. And then I wonder about emerging markets, perhaps even Europe, uh, you know, global names like a Microsoft and others, might they feel a particular impact if regions slow um, in, a, in a global impact type of recessionary scenario? Yeah, it's a very good point. And it's something that you definitely have to consider when you're talking about a company as large as Microsoft that has the geographic expanse that Microsoft has, both in terms of certain regions might see more weakness than others. We're more concerned about European spending than we are about U.S. spending right now. So Microsoft's presence in Europe is definitely something to keep an eye on. The other side of the equation is currencies. Uh, currencies, as you guys well know, have been very volatile. You've seen a, a really sharp strengthening of the U.S. dollar. Um, that impacts Microsoft in terms of their reported numbers. Investors tend to look at constant currency growth uh, to understand the strength of, uh, of the business. But in terms of reported numbers, that's another thing that we had to trim our estimates for was that stronger U.S. dollar in reference to Microsoft's international exposures. Keith, good morning. Um, we have been talking on the show in recent weeks about the opportunity of the suite or the bundle at a time when companies are looking to cut costs. And I wonder if Microsoft is in a good position to pick up some of these customers, new customers through cross-selling, undercutting the smaller guys, the smaller players. Do you think that that could be an upside surprise potentially for the stock? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it's part of what gives us so much confidence in Microsoft. And I think it's part of the strength that we're seeing in our CIO survey. Microsoft is a great consolidation play. They have a huge breadth of offering. And, and like you're saying, they bundle it into very attractive uh, packages. Uh, we see that in indications of CIOs looking to upgrade their Office 365 subscription from a lower level uh, subscription to one that incorporates more functionality like video conferencing or telephony or security, uh, where you can get multiple functionalities at a price that's much more attractive than if you're going to buy the smaller individual technologies themselves. So that bundling capability, I think, is a, uh, a real strong point of Microsoft. They have a really good um, uh, um, price performance, if you will. The other side of that equation, though, is that their solutions themselves have just been getting a lot better. 
Um, it doesn't really work to consolidate if you're consolidating onto subpar products. What Microsoft has been able to do over the past couple of years is really improve the functionality of all their uh, solutions to make it more attractive to do that consolidation for CIOs, make that decision easier for them. They're not giving up as much when you go for that consolidated package. I think that's what helps sustain Microsoft's commercial businesses better than a lot of investors fear right now. Hey, Keith, uh, the street got all worked up uh, this week about this partnership with Netflix and a lot of speculation about what ifs uh, regarding how deep that partnership might eventually go. Could it lead to M&A? I just wonder what, where you think Microsoft's bandwidth is right now on M&A, uh, given where Activision is at the moment. Yeah, the, the partnership is a really good example of um, how Microsoft has been able to benefit by not competing with a lot of these customers out there. Uh, they're not trying to do streaming media that makes them a much more attractive partner to someone like Netflix. They're not trying to build a autonomous vehicle. It makes them a much more attractive partner to some of the automobile suppliers as they're trying to do their own autonomous vehicles and they're looking for a technology partner. They're not trying to do grocery and it makes them more attractive to uh, grocers who are trying to do a digital transformation and evolve the way that their stores work. Given that backdrop of that, this um, uh, Switzerland position, if you will, of not trying to go into the businesses of, of a lot of their core customers, I think that's a really big benefit for Microsoft and one that they're not going to try to transgress, if you will. I think it's very unlikely they'll try to buy someone like a Netflix to get into those businesses. They would much rather partner with them stick to their knitting, do what they do really well, which is provide the underlying technologies um, and let these businesses like NetSuite, uh, I'm sorry, like Netflix do what they do really well, uh, which is drive really good content, get good engagement for that content with the end user subscriber. And then I think that that combination is, is a better overall outcome. Yeah, I, I love that slip. Oracle, definitely not Switzerland in how it's bought NetSuite <laughs> and others. Um, I wonder what you make of the action on a day like today. I mean, I, we should mention that so many software names are up considerably. Adobe up almost 2%, for example, and they've been very choppy in trade so far. Why are they responding this way? Is this just based on the fact that given the signals in the market, we should expect volatility from day to day and week to week? Yeah. Number one, you should absolutely be expecting volatility um, across the market. There's a lot of uncertainty out there on the macro, a lot of uncertainty on inflation and interest rates, and that's going to impute a lot of volatility into the market in total. Software in general tends to be a high beta space. Um, we've seen plus 5% moves in our sector um, each week for the past three weeks, and this week is going to be no, no different. Uh, you're going to see another big move this week. We, number two, we fundamentally uh, lean positively on software. And I think one of the reasons that you're seeing uh, software do, uh, do well is the durability of these secular growth trends, um, which helps the overall software group, and the durability of their earnings. Um, Within software, about 80% of overall revenues is recurring in nature. It's these subscriptions and these term contracts. And this is going to enable these companies to better protect their earnings and their free cash flow. Um, and you saw that when we cut our Microsoft numbers, the EPS number just didn't come down very much. Uh, because of the subscription model, the demand impacts get spread out over a considerable period of time. I think that makes software relatively more attractive than most industries, given the dynamics of these business models. All right. Keith Weiss, thank you. Excellent. Thank you for having me. We're still near uh, session highs. Dow, best day since June 24th. Let's get a news update with Dom Chu. Hey, Dom. 
Good morning, Carl. Uh, here's what's happening at this hour. Citigroup shares, they're soaring about 10% this morning so far. The big bank's quarterly profits fell 27%, but Wall Street was expecting an even bigger drop. Volatility in the commodities and foreign exchange markets boosted revenues for its trading desks there. But like J.P. Morgan Chase yesterday, Citigroup is suspending share buybacks to bolster its capital ratios ahead of a stricter regulatory environment. As gasoline prices fall sharply, consumers are less pessimistic about future inflation. Expectations for price gains over the next five years fell to their lowest level in about a year. And the government says retail sales increased by one full percent last month, a bit more than expected. But that number, remember, is not adjusted for inflation. Prices increased by 1.3 percent in June, so real sales were actually down. Always, dear, for something to keep track of, those non-inflation-adjusted retail sales. I'll send things back over to you. Absolutely, Dom Chu. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Meanwhile, check out Amazon shares. They are among the top gainers on the Nasdaq 100 as Wall Street gets bullish post-Prime Day. We will tell you why next. Welcome back. Let's take a look at another mega cap for today's edition of Overvalued, Undervalued, and that's Amazon. Analysts taking the under this morning. Morgan Stanley, B of A, Barclays all like what they see from Prime Day, noting the shoppers bought more than 300 million items during the day and striking a bullish tone on the revenue guidance heading into Q3, despite a brutal year for e-commerce. On the flip side, the company still faces that overinvestment amid that broader slowdown in consumer demand, a cycle that they'll have to break if we do head into a possible recession. And that's not even factoring in any labor headwinds, shortages, regulation. The company sees weak sales from their private label business, at least according to the journal today. The sources say company plans to cut the number of items sold under their own brand, John, and Mike and I uh, this morning discussed whether or not that's related to uh, weak sales or trying to ameliorate the effect of some regulation. Yeah, we don't know how Amazon behaves as a stock or as an operation in a recessionary environment. I mean, modern Amazon D in the sense that uh, back in the financial crisis, the cloud was still pretty much a brand new thing, and AWS certainly wasn't at its current scale. So uh, a company like Walmart tends to get the benefit of the doubt during difficult economic times because people feel like, oh, well, that's where people are going to go to shop to get their groceries. That's what, that's what they have. Will the same happen with Amazon? Will the loyalty programs kick in? And might a weakening economy actually strengthen Amazon's labor position? You know, Time's got a story out about the unions that are pushing for warehouse unionization, losing momentum right now. How does that yeah. affect the situation? I don't know. It's, it's something to watch. It's certainly something to watch. Uh, Amazon's been through a few downturns. But to the question of what it's going to do with its private label division, guys, we just kind of spoke about this with Keith, right? The idea that Microsoft may be the Switzerland of big tech. It's not going to compete with its customers. Amazon has been on the far other end of that spectrum, right? It's going into basically, it will try any business if it can make money. Their private label uh, has been one of them, which can essentially pit it against some of its customers, the retailers on the platform. Um, so we'll see how that works out. But could maybe for an investor increase that value proposition if it's not growing anyways um, to maybe get out of that business and support their customers or gain more of them. 
Um, anyways, guys, we've also been hitting the potential software slowdown this week. Um, what about hardware? Despite the hype around Apple's newest MacBook, our next guest anticipates an uphill battle with the company's third quarter revenue, though he still recommends picking up shares, calling it attractive compared to other mega cap names, given its typical return on invested capital. Joining us now, KeyBank Capital Markets, Brandon Nispel. Brandon, good morning to you. Great to have you. Um, simple question. Is Wall Street too optimistic on Apple's near term. It feels like investors are hiding out in this name, but it is vulnerable to consumer, the consumer economy. Um, and there's this assumption that maybe it can sidestep weakness that other players are going to have to deal with. Is that too optimistic? Well, first of all, thank, thanks for having me. I, I think in the near term, some of the data that, that we picked up from our credit card database and, and some of the macro concerns, particularly around PC sales, that was really the cause of us lowering our estimates more recently. I think going forward where expectations lie, um, you know, FX is going to be a key concern that should be a headwind. But Apple overall should be relatively well positioned because of the utility of the smartphone and, and the growing user base that the company has. We think that's probably the most uh, attractive value proposition that Apple has is a growing uh, billion plus iPhone user base. Yeah, which certainly helps the services side of things. Brandon, what are you looking for um, when the company reports in a few weeks from now? What do you want to hear from Tim Cook? If not exactly words, what kind of vibe do you want to get from him? Well, I, I, I think Apple is generally going to put out a, a pretty rosy outlook, um, optimistic as, as typical. Uh, our, our numbers are a little bit below consensus. And I think that really just factors in FX. Um, you know, key there is, is the euro and the yen, which, you know, have been pressured. So I think from a guidance standpoint, we could get um, something slightly lower than what the consensus expects uh, at this point, because consensus numbers haven't quite all reset. But overall, I think the long-term outlook is still going to be really bright for Apple because, um, because again, going back to the user base, uh, it's a metric that Apple rarely discloses. But on our numbers, the iPhone user base is, is nearing 1.1 billion. Uh, and that's really there's some really healthy growth mid-single digit on our numbers. Um, so I think you know Tim and company will continue to have optimism around the business because of that growing user base. You know, I know it's not... Apple to Apple, as to forgive the pun, but I wonder if you think there are lessons in the way Amazon, for example, managed this incredible pull forward in demand and the way Apple did it and whether that says something about their uh, logistics prowess. Well, I mean, I think from a supply chain perspective, Apple, Apple is really well positioned. I, I think it could, you know, a couple of things going for the company. Um, looking forward, you know, we have China lockdowns that should be easing. Um, and, and demand in China should should be strong. Um, you know, I, I think the product, the utility that we get out of the core iPhone product is um, something that's really remarkable. Can't think of too many other devices that I spend more time on. Um, and, and so from a demand perspective, I, I think Apple will be fine. I will also add just, you know, we cover the wireless carriers in the U.S. too. And I think from an overall upgrade perspective, 5G is, is you know, a secular driver for Apple and getting consumers in the newest uh, devices um, is something that every carrier in the world is probably trying to incentivize consumers to do. Um, right. and, and the latest devices for Apple um, continue to get better and better. Brandon, I mean, what, what really matters at this point, now that we're in the second half, isn't it Q4 and the setup for it, uh, whether the iPhone 
looks attractive, how much carriers are going to subsidize uh, in Q4, whether retail stores are fully open, particularly in China, and um, you know, Apple's managed inventories in the ways that Tim Cook tends to manage inventories. I mean, all the other stuff, in a way, isn't that noise? I, I tend to agree with you. Typically, the fiscal third and fourth quarter for Apple are relatively quiet. And then when you get to the December fiscal first quarter, that, that's really where um, things matter more. So I, I definitely agree with that. Brandon, thanks for your insights. Have a good weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Coming up, is the easy money era in crypto over? With this week's downfall of yet another high-yield player, we will discuss. Don't go away. Another week of troubles for the crypto ecosystem, though Bitcoin and Ether prices are higher at this hour than they were Monday. Uh, with lender Celsius, though, the latest company to file bankruptcy, it promised yields on deposit as high as 17%. And after the collapse of stablecoins Luna and Terra, which offered similar high-yield promises, looks like the easy money era in crypto might be over. So what does that mean for the broader ecosystem and for consumers who might be looking to pick something up or not? CNBC.com's Mackenzie Sagalos joins us now. Mackenzie, um, I keep wondering, are there more counterparties at risk here? And how is that going to affect how people feel about the opportunity versus risk in crypto? What are you hearing as you have conversations? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the question that everybody is asking, because every other day we learn about a new counterparty that was exposed to Three Arrows Capital, for example. But then you have your platforms like Celsius and Voyager, who were the ones that were really working with your mom and pop investor. And so those days of double-digit annual returns are likely a thing of the past because those yields, John, they weren't real in the first place. And this is not, I mean, Celsius was a major player in this ecosystem. Less than a year ago, it had $25 billion in assets under management, and now it's being accused of operating like a Ponzi scheme, that it was paying early depositors with money it got from new users. You know, the other big problem with this idea of easy money uh, no longer being a thing in the crypto ecosystem is that some of these lending platforms were keeping up with these sky high returns by investing their own funds into mm. other platforms doing the exact same thing. So it was this very dangerous knock-on effect. And I wonder, I mean, this week we had um, major banks saying that they're going to take a hit to earnings, right, because they're going to build up their reserves because in a difficult economic environment, they expect more people and institutions who they've lent out money to not to pay them back. This is already hitting the crypto ecosystem, right? So does this just make it harder on that already troubled area? Yes, it does. I mean, we've seen this happen time and again, that crypto is not bucking, you know, larger macroeconomic trends at play. They're not immune from what's happening in the traditional financial system. And I mean, like, even just look at what's going on with the Fed, right? There are rumblings that it may hike rates even faster in response to new inflation data. And you got Bernstein putting out a report that says that the crypto market, like all other risk on assets, remains tightly correlated to that Fed policy. So it just goes to show you know, leverage is a drug, but the second you suck out all of that liquidity for whatever reason, whether it's the Fed or whether it's this domino effect of failures in the crypto ecosystem, the party is over for a lot of these players. 
Okay, but Mackenzie, the party is not over. We're talking about these crypto interest accounts like they're in the past. I'm on the Binance website right now. Grow your crypto faster. Earn up to 35% APY. BlockFi for high net worth clients. Earn custom interest rates. I don't understand how this is still working. Yeah. So, I mean, BlockFi just was bailed out and got a, a pretty big loan. FTX is increasingly becoming the player who is propping up this ecosystem. But Deirdre, I feel like you know, there are different ways to earn yield in the crypto ecosystem, and some platforms are doing quite well, quite well right now. So you've got, uh, you know, centralized finance lenders, Celsius and Voyager, who are bankrupt. But you have Aave and Compound, and they appear unscathed by the liquidity bottleneck. And the reason is that they have an entirely different business model. Like, they're letting customers lend capital on a money market. They're asset-backed. They're over-collateralized. So they're not offering as much yield as the numbers that you just cited on other platforms, but it's a system that is working. It will probably survive what we're seeing right now. So, and I will say this, it's worth noting the tokens associated with both Aave and Compound, they're up around 20% in the last 24 hours. So there is enthusiasm that this corner is, is safe yeah. from the contagion effect. But yeah, but we know how that's, how that's gone in the past. And I mean, 35% APY, it seems as crazy as when we were talking about it months ago. Uh, Mackenzie, thank you. And if you want even more crypto coverage, don't miss CNBC's daily digital series, Crypto World. That's Monday to Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern. Head to cnbc.com slash crypto world for more. We're back in just two. Check out Netflix, one of the best performers on the NASDAQ 100 today and one of the first big tech companies we'll get earnings from. But UBS is slashing its price target from 355 to 198 ahead of those earnings. They expect that they will disappoint. And while some are bullish on the company's new ad partnership with Microsoft, analysts at the firm think that it could delay profitability by one or even two years. They're keeping a cautious outlook for the second half of the year. Shares up nearly five and a half percent. We'll be right back. The president meeting in Saudi Arabia with the Crown Prince, MBS. Our Kayla Tausche is watching that live from the White House and has a lot more. Kayla, on a day where body language means a lot. Yeah, it was a very highly anticipated greeting, Carl, when MBS, uh, the crown prince, greeted President Biden with a fist bump as the two walked into the presidential palace, where President Biden will be meeting with Saudi Arabia's King Salman, who is the elder leader, and he's the de facto ruling leader of the royal family there in Saudi Arabia. Earlier this week, there had been a ton of reporting that President Biden would not be shaking hands on this particular foreign trip, his doctors citing COVID precautions, but also conveniently, uh, that advice allowed the president to avoid shaking hands in a photo op with the person that U.S. intelligence suggests was responsible for the killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. President Biden is now going to be meeting with King Salman. Later, he will be meeting with MBS and other members of the ruling the uh, royal family as well. And then later on in this trip, he'll be meeting with Gulf leaders in aggregate to talk about whether it's possible for OPEC Plus to produce any more than it already has, put any more meaningful amounts of oil onto the global market. We'll see what, if anything, that group accomplishes. Carl? Uh, yeah, market still has uh, some doubts about that, uh, Kayla, as we got oil prices uh, continuing to climb a little bit higher uh, today. Kayla Tausche joining us to talk about the president's visit. In the meantime, guys, uh, next week is going to be awfully interesting. We're going to get Goldman and B of A 
on Monday, IBM Monday night, John, but then Twitter and Snap uh, and uh, AT&T. It's going to be very busy as we work our way into the second gear of earnings week. But for the time being, near 2% gains on the Dow as we try to unwind some of the weekly losses. The judge is in the house. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15, discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know.